Thanks for joining the Hague Mennonite Church podcast. We are a small and friendly congregation in Hague, Saskatchewan. Here you will find our weekly messages and we hope you will be encouraged and blessed. Let's get it started. We're continuing with our Matthew series. We're on part two of 28, so I feel really optimistic. And if you remember from last time, in this series, Matthew is really focused on showing us how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. So we're going to keep coming back to that again and again and again because Matthew keeps coming back to how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. And this morning, actually, we're skipping that really, really interesting episode with the wise men, which we talked about a little bit in Sunday school this morning. But to get you caught up, the short of it is that Herod heard from these wise men traveling from the east that a king had been born. So he tried to use the wise men as spies so he could expose this king who he thought was a rival and a threat to his throne. What we know about Herod is Herod was paranoid. He was probably fairly insane. Satan was deep under Herod's skin. And actually, historians wrote about this quite a bit, and they give us lots of examples. And I'll give you just one, because it helps to show how what we see about Herod in Matthew is totally in keeping with his character. When Herod was growing older and he knew he was about to die, he wanted a great mausoleum to be buried in. And he wanted one that would overlook the city of Jerusalem, but there were no hills that looked down on Jerusalem. So he forced a slave army to build him a hill. And he built the mausoleum on the hill. And then he realized once his beautiful fortress had been made that nobody would mourn him because he was so evil to everyone. So before he died, he had all of the top and most esteemed aristocrats in the Jewish community arrested under the orders that as soon as Herod died, they would all be put to death. That way all Israel would mourn his death. And thank God the people who were in charge after Herod died uh, neglected to follow through on his order. But this is the kind of man that Herod was. So the kind of man who would be worried about a prophecy about a child being born in Bethlehem, you know? But Herod's plan to use the wise men fails. The wise men who are going to go and report to Herod what they had found, they have a dream and they, they leave without reporting to him. And so we pick up our story again in Matthew 2, verse 13, which Ron read earlier. And what I want to invite you to do is think about those things that Ron had read and that you see up on the screen. Because I hope that to some degree you can put yourself in Joseph's place. Because imagine this. We know that Jesus' birth was complicated. And then, after some time, these strange astrologers turn up who seem to come from nowhere. And they've just departed now. And you don't really understand what that's about. And then that night, maybe, even, you have a dream. And then this dream, an angel tells you that for reasons you don't understand, Herod, the most powerful man in all Israel, wants your baby boy dead. And you need to flee now. And again, in the gospel, we see Joseph's faith. His faith is amazing. Because the scripture tells us that that night, in the middle of the night, Joseph wakes up his family and tells Mary, trembling, that they need to flee. 
And they take what they can carry, and they take their baby boy, and they set out in the middle of the night on a journey through arid country on foot some 300 miles west to Egypt. And in Egypt, they don't know anyone. They have no plan. There's no job waiting for Joseph, but they flee, refugees. And as I was thinking on this scripture, I couldn't help but think about all of those dads in Syria or in Myanmar who over these past few years have had to go through exactly that. How many thousands of dads have had to take what they can carry and set out with their wives and their children in the middle of the night to God knows what. They could head out in desperation, they might end up in a refugee camp, or they might just drown in the Mediterranean on their way to Greece. And I think that sometimes we hear about stories like this so often that our hearts grow callous. And if that's true, then God have mercy on us. Because this is absolute terror. And so you have to ask the hard question, why doesn't God just stop it? Why doesn't God just stop Herod's plan? He stopped Jesus from being exposed. Why not stop this part of the plan? Why not give Herod a dream and scare him and stop him? Why does there have to be the suffering? Everyone suffers. Christians and non-Christians, rich and poor. Some people suffer more than others, and some people suffer less, and we don't know why that is. And many times when we suffer, we start to feel that God has let us down. Perhaps we've done something wrong, or maybe even that God has abandoned us. And I wonder if that's how Joseph felt. Because if we are God's children and we are in his care, why do we feel so much pain? And some people, when they encounter suffering so deep, they do lose their faith. And we've seen it. Someone loses a child, or they lose a loved one, or their marriage falls apart. Or watching loved ones get cancer and die slowly. Any number of things. And they ask that awful and honest question, if God loves us, why doesn't he stop it? And yet, through all of this mess that Joseph and his family are in, Matthew tells us that something that the prophets predicted has been fulfilled in verse 15. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Now in this passage, Matthew is actually quoting from the prophet Hosea in the Hebrew Scriptures in the Old Testament. And the full verse says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. And so Bible trivia time, feel free to answer. When in the Bible do we know that Israel was called out of Egypt? Does that remind you of a story? The Exodus. And now something really amazing starts to happen as Matthew points out this verse. Because think about the story of the Exodus. Do you remember another evil king in that story? Pharaoh. Why does Pharaoh in the story of the Exodus feel threatened? Yeah, because the Israelites were growing in number and becoming more powerful. So what does Pharaoh ultimately do in order to try to stop them? He kills their baby boys. 
And in that story, Moses is miraculously saved when his mother puts him in the Nile in a basket. And at one point, Moses has to flee from Egypt. He flees east down the same road Mary and Joseph fled in the opposite direction. And God protects Moses by bringing him out of Egypt, and God protects Jesus by sending him into Egypt. But as the scripture says in Hosea, out of Egypt, God will call his son again, just like he once called Israel when they were freed from slavery. Out of Egypt, I have called my son. Matthew has full awareness that this is bad, this is evil, but God has seen this before. He's dealt with it before. He dealt with this in Moses, he dealt with it in the nation of Israel, and God loves his son. Verses 16 to 18. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise man, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeps for, weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Herod's been tricked, his spies have double-crossed him, and his response is, well, if I couldn't find out which baby it was, I'll just have them all killed. And his idea is, if one of these are supposed to be the king, well, then the problem is solved. We know roughly what the population of Bethlehem was at the time, and so we don't know for sure, but the population or the estimate for the number of boys that were killed were probably between 25 and 50. And Herod's hands were so stained with blood that a murder like that doesn't even make the historical record. Usually his numbers are so much more beyond that. Davy isn't too yet. And I can't read this kind of stuff dispassionately. And we probably shouldn't read it dispassionately. Because this is what sin does. And imagine being that parent who just watched your baby murdered because of some strange explanation from Herod. It's unbelievable. Or imagine being Mary and Joseph when word reaches Egypt of what had happened. And as we just mentioned, we have seen this before. Pharaoh did the exact same thing to the Hebrew boys in Egypt. He had all of the boys drowned because of his paranoia, and he wanted to weaken the nation of Israel. And this isn't some sort of cute idea about history repeating itself, and Matthew isn't making this up in order to match the story of the Exodus. This is a story about suffering love. It's a story about Jesus suffering like Moses suffered, it's a story of Jesus suffering like Israel suffered. And this time we see that God suffers with us. And in this passage again, Matthew again sees fulfillment. And the passage this time is from Jeremiah. And just an update, Jeremiah is someone who lived generations before Jesus. God sent Jeremiah to warn the people of Israel that their unbelief was eventually going to destroy them. 
He warned the people that they would lose their homeland if they didn't return to God. And the people did not listen to him. And he watched it happen. He watched his nation destroyed. And Jeremiah could very well cry out with all of those who lost their boys in Bethlehem and all of those who lost their boys in the Nile, why doesn't God just stop it? Why the suffering? Why the deportation? Why the destruction of the city? Why? And Jeremiah writes, Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Now, Ramah was a region near Jerusalem. But Bible trivia time again. Do you remember who Rachel is in the scriptures? She was the wife of Jacob. And do you remember how she died? Does anyone remember? Through childbirth. She was giving birth to Benjamin, and she died in childbirth. Do you remember now where she was buried? Just outside Bethlehem. (laughs) And you can start to see that there are so many layers of meaning here. Rachel died giving birth to her son Benjamin near Bethlehem 2,000 years before Jesus. And in Jewish thought, she became this wonderful symbol of suffering motherhood. And then Jeremiah, writing 600 years before Jesus, saw the defeat and deportation of his people and said it was like Rachel weeping for her children. And Matthew sees this, and he sees another fulfillment in Jesus' life. He sees the pattern. And he can see Rachel weeping for the boys dead in Bethlehem, near where she died, because they are no more. How does God respond? Jeremiah didn't just write this verse that Matthew quotes. If you keep reading, it says this, Thus says the Lord, Keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. God told Jeremiah that despite all of the evil that he had witnessed, to have hope. One day he will bring the people back from exile and they will be restored. But what does that mean for the boys in Bethlehem? And I think it means that death does not have the last word. God will make this right. And one day, even those boys senselessly killed in Bethlehem will be brought back to resurrection and life. And how could anyone know that it was the baby boy they died for who was going to make this possible? Heavy enough yet? we got to keep going. One more section. Matthew 2, 19 to 20. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. Herod only lived another year or two after this whole event. And of course, when that happens, then God tells Joseph it's safe to go back. 
But let me read to you a passage from Exodus 4 and tell me if this sounds familiar. The Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey, and they went back to the land of Egypt. If you were in Matthew's original Jewish audience and you had spent your life studying the Torah, as soon as you heard these words about Jesus, you'd jump right out of your seat. Because it's just like Moses, the hero of the faith. Matthew is showing that Jesus is just like Moses. He's a new Moses. He's a new Israel, reliving Israel's exodus. And you even think about it, he comes out of the desert, he comes out of Egypt. Later in his life, he's baptized in the Jordan, like the crossing of the Jordan. He spends 40 days in the wilderness, as Israel spent 40 years. Jesus is really represented as a new Israel. Someone is going to take Moses' role as a spiritual leader, and he's going to take Israel's role as the light to the world, and he's going to complete it. He's going through the same stuff they did. And he's going through, through the same stuff as those little boys being pulled by their fathers out of Syria. And he's going through the same terror and fear and mourning and sadness that in some ways and different degrees we all know. Because he is Emmanuel. He is God with us. Tim Mackey, the guy from the Bible Project, he asks a really great question about Matthew chapter 2. He says, What if God is good and he is working out his purposes but he's doing it in the kind of way we just don't want to hear. Why didn't God stop Herod? Why didn't God stop Pharaoh? Why did the innocent boys die? Why the displacement and the fear? Why are so many people dying in Syria? And why do we suffer today? And why did God have to die on a cross? We want things another way. We feel like there's got to be an easier way. But instead of wiping the slate clean and starting over, God has decided to get directly involved in our messy and painful world because his plan isn't to start over. His plan is to restore it. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking on the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The story of Jesus' birth isn't simply that he was humble and born in a manger, which is less than a king deserves. He was a refugee, he was innocent, and he was fleeing for his life, which is less than anyone deserves. He didn't just come into this world humble. He came into this world at the very bottom, the most desperate, among the most hurting people. And what I'm telling you by saying all of these things is that God loves you. And the best way he knows to prove his love is to suffer for you and with you when he does not have to. 
Jesus grieves those little boys in Bethlehem. He grieves the children tossed into the Nile River. He grieves the little ones drowned as they flee across the Mediterranean today. He was there and he knows what it's like. And yet Jesus steps straight into all of this darkness when he allowed himself to be arrested, to be mocked, and even to be executed. He died the worst death so that we can live the best life. And because he rose three days later, we can also trust that we will rise in him. And because he promised that he will come again and make things right, we know that this pain and suffering will not go on forever. And because he loved us in our pain, we now must love others in their pain. We cannot turn away from suffering because we are the instruments of the only one loving enough and powerful enough to heal it. So the invitation is this, even through these stories, it is to bring your pain to the altar. And to the sick and the dying, Jesus says to come to the altar. And to the sad and the lonely, Jesus says to come to the altar. Because the Lord has not, has not abandoned you. He came so close that he suffered as well. And he has gone to prepare a place for you, and one day he will come for you, and he has promised specifically to wipe every tear from your eye. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And so I asked that question earlier, if God loves us, why won't he stop this? And the answer is, he will. Amen. Thanks so much for listening to the Hague Mennonite Church Podcast. For more information about us, you can go to our website haguemennonitechurch.ca. Until the next time.